0: So before we move into the theme of tonight's talk, I just wanted to acknowledge that Dara and I have been giving you quite a bit of information, a lot of different practices, different methods, different techniques, approaches to meditation, and the various teachings that really underpin them and guide us into the heart of wisdom. So, we hope that you aren't feeling too overwhelmed by this kind of all-you-can-eat buffet. And just as with a buffet, the strategy might be to take what you need right now, what feels nourishing, digest it, and then perhaps when the time is right, you might come back and revisit some of the other things later. So we really have no expectation that you have to take in everything and understand it and master it in these few short days. And if you are perhaps starting to feel a bit full, then right there is an opportunity to practice with the quality that I'm going to be exploring in more depth tonight, which you might have guessed is equanimity, the fourth of the four Brahma Viharas. And we've been saving this one till last because it is such a powerful and often overlooked quality of heart and mind. It's a quality that helps us navigate life challenges of every kind. The highs and lows, the ups and downs, the successes and failures, the 10,000 sorrows, the 10,000 joys both in our meditation practice here on retreat and in our daily lives too. So in the context of the Buddha's teachings, this quality of equanimity is very highly valued. And in the context of mainstream society, it's almost completely undervalued. So much so that probably many of us, well, speaking of myself, I'd never even heard the word equanimity until I started getting involved in the Dhamma. So just as a brief definition to get us started, as I mentioned back on opening night, this word equanimity basically means balance. The balance of the heart-mind that's completely at ease. There's no wanting, there's no not wanting. No resisting anything. So it's the capacity to simply be with what is. With acceptance and peace. And sometimes when I give these talks, people tell me, well, that sounds great, but you don't know what's going on in my life right now. Deep acceptance and peace are about as far away as the moon. So just to say that uh, the Buddha was very clear that equanimity is a quality we can cultivate. So pretty much every practice that we've been doing here, in various ways, supports this development of balance and ease. And we can see this in the way that equanimity is included in so many of the numbered lists of the Buddha's teachings. And pretty much in every list that it appears in, it appears as the last quality. So we've seen that in the arrangement of the four Where in the Theravada tradition, generally equanimity is seen as the pinnacle. It's the balance between compassion, karuna, and appreciative joy, mudita. Because when we can open fully to the full spectrum of life, with some degree of acceptance and ease, then that's the flowering of equanimity. Then in terms of yet another numbered list, some of you are familiar from the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Establishments of Mindfulness. We have within that the seven factors of awakening. And these are very skillful mental qualities, mental states, that arise when we've managed to free the mind from the hindrances. And when these seven awakening factors are completely in balance, they provide the best conditions for deep insights to arise. As a quick reminder, these seven factors are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy or rapture, tranquility, samādhi, or stability of mind, and, lastly, equanimity. So again, equanimity comes last. Equanimity is also a factor in cultivating jhanas, those deep states of absorption. And in the beginning stages, uh, we have mental happiness and bliss. But as the absorptions deepen, Each level becomes increasingly more subtle and refined until by the fourth jhana, the experience is one of profound equanimity. And if you can tolerate just one more list, the list of the ten parami, the ten parami qualities that particularly uh, get developed in the context of daily life. And they're qualities of character, you could say, that need the conditions of daily life to strengthen them. So generosity, ethical conduct, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolve, metta, and equanimity is the last one again. So I wanted to just do that very quick run through of some of those lists to highlight how much equanimity is woven throughout the Buddha's teachings and also to give you a sense of that there are different flavors or qualities, aspects of this equanimity, different nuances. And in terms of this metaphor of the two wings of awakening, wisdom and compassion, I think of equanimity in some ways as being like the hinge between the two because it is a Brahma Vihara, so we can classify it under the compassion wing. And it has a wisdom component because it comes about through seeing clearly, through insight. But it's also the expression of that clear seeing because when we see clearly, we don't resist, we don't cling. So equanimity has a very direct connection to insight. And the Pali word that's usually translated as equanimity is upekka, which literally means to look over, which suggests being in a, in a position to see the bigger picture, to get a broader perspective. And when we have that bigger picture, there's usually a sense of spaciousness, of ease, of calm. So to perhaps get a little flavor of that, a couple of evenings ago, Durar and I were walking back from the hall. And we have got in the habit of stopping to look at the view of the lake just over there. And on this particular evening, it was completely still. I don't know if any of you noticed that. But it was like glass. There was no ripples at all, and because of the stillness, the sky was perfectly reflected in the surface of the lake. There was almost no distinction between the water and the sky. And when I looked at it, I felt this immediate sense of opening and expansiveness. It was like my own being became a little more spacious. I wasn't stuck in my own narrow viewpoint anymore. And it was just a moment of release, a small taste of the freedom that comes from seeing the bigger picture. And so I was thinking of this experience of the lake, and I was in the dining room and I noticed the sign that said the name of that lake is Lake Freestad, which I thought was an interesting name. And so I happened to notice on the wall in the dining room there's a little bit of a history, and it said that. Uh, Sig Antora Freestad, were the European owners of this land. And in 1959, they very generously donated their farmland with the intention that it become this campground. So here we are today, benefiting from their generosity 60 years later. So I was interested in their name, Freestad, and they were Norwegian and one of the many transmissions I got from Dara is the dictionary transmission. <laughs> so I had to look up Freestad, and apparently in Swedish and Norwegian, the name Freestad means sanctuary or refuge, safe haven, resting place, or asylum. So how perfect is that? Because. For me, one of the benefits of equanimity is it's what I can take with me when I leave retreat. So we come into these specialized conditions that create the sanctuary or the refuge, but we can't stay here forever. At some point, we have to leave. We can't take the retreat with us, but we can take this quality of equanimity as a kind of portable sanctuary or refuge one that we can bring with us in our hearts after we leave the physical sanctuary of this campground. So this clear seeing, getting the bigger picture, is one aspect of equanimity. And so too is non-reactivity, the capacity to simply accept whatever we're experiencing, moment to moment to moment. But this non-reactivity is not about trying to become some kind of inert lump of stone. And I think sometimes the idea of equanimity is misunderstood or even misused in the service of a kind of spiritual bypassing where we try to numb ourselves out or avoid uncomfortable emotions, or justify our passivity in the face of harmful actions, whether those actions are coming from individuals or collectively on a societal level. So I'll come back to that point a little later, but for now just to emphasize that equanimity is not about trying to make ourselves into some kind of passive doormat. It's about cultivating the capacity to respond rather than react. So what's the difference between responding and reacting? To me, reacting means being on autopilot, just lashing out according to habitual, deeply conditioned patterns with no awareness. And those patterns usually revolve around a strong sense of me at the center. Whereas responding comes from attunement to what is. It's a more intuitive and embodied engagement. There's less self-centeredness to it, so there's usually more capacity to take in the perspective of other people alongside our own. So there's a broader and more spacious quality to it. And even though we might intellectually understand the value of equanimity, for many of us it's a challenging quality to to embody more deeply. And this is partly because, as I said earlier, it's not something that's generally valued by mainstream society. So, for example, if you get to the airport early and you find out that your flight has been delayed by six hours and you're now going to arrive at your destination at 1.30 in the morning, the usual response would not be to go up to the airline service desk and thank them for giving you the opportunity to practice equanimity. (laughs) Usually, it's an opportunity to get lost in reactivity because in mainstream society, drama is generally much more valued than equanimity. We're almost addicted to the highs and lows of life. And we tend not to pay too much attention to those times when we are balanced and at ease. Because again, those times are not threatening to our survival. So because of the mind's inbuilt negativity bias, we tend to not even register those quieter, calmer, Times, So that's one reason why in many of the individual meetings I've been inviting you to see if you can notice those times when the heart-mind is experiencing more subtle, more refined qualities of ease and tranquility, calm, equanimity, and so on. And I think especially for people who are new to practice, this quality of equanimity might sound very lofty or even inaccessible. But just by way of reassurance, all of us here on this retreat have been actually cultivating equanimity since the moment you arrived. Because to some extent, equanimity is implicit in the development of mindfulness. As you know, mindfulness is the capacity to know what we're experiencing just as it is, without adding reactivity. So this term, bare awareness, that I've been um, emphasizing, you could say that's an aspect of equanimity. So if you think of pretty much any of the main definitions of mindfulness, you can get a sense of this flavor of equanimity that's... uh, in them, for example, Gil Fronsdal he says mindfulness is the cultivation of clear, stable, and non-judgmental awareness. So that non-judgmental piece is equanimity. And Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein define mindfulness as being aware of what is going on as it actually arises, not being lost in our confusion or judgment about it our fantasies of what it means, our hopes, our fears, our aversion. Rather, mindfulness means being nakedly and directly with what is happening right now. Likewise, Bhikkhu Inalio, who has written a quite a well-known book on Satipatthana, he says, he defines mindfulness as keep calmly knowing change. Keep calmly knowing change, and it's the calmly peace that brings it back into the terrain of equanimity. So every moment that we're mindful, we're also strengthening the non-reactivity of equanimity. So it's a win-win situation. And there's also a reciprocal relationship between equanimity and wisdom. By wisdom here I mean insight. The capacity to see the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta with more and more clarity. So just as a quick reminder of those three characteristics, the truth that everything we experience is impermanent, it's imperfect, and it's impersonal. And the more clearly we see these three characteristics, the more deeply they support the peace of equanimity. Because when we understand that everything is constantly changing, none of it can give us lasting satisfaction, and none of it is our fault, we experience relief ease and peace. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these insights, the less equanimity we experience and the more we suffer. So how much equanimity we're experiencing gives us very clear feedback about whether or not we're living in alignment with wisdom. So just a little bit more detail about this relationship between equanimity and the three characteristics. First of all, anicca or impermanence. We can see how often we get caught in resisting the natural ebbs and flows of the practice here on retreat. This has been a theme in many of the meetings how unconsciously we often believe that we should be able to somehow get to some kind of steady state happiness and stay there. Turn on cruise control and that's it. We're set for the rest of the retreat. But because of the truth of a Nietzsche impermanence, at some point we find ourselves swerving off the highway and bumping along the pothole country roads. And our usual response is to try and get that peace and happiness back and then to react with anger to ourselves or to the practice when that doesn't happen. And then that gives way to self-judgment, restlessness, worry, doubt, self-doubt, the classical multiple hindrance attack. Sounds like some of you might recognize that. So we can save ourselves a lot of angst if we understand that because of impermanence, these different phases of the practice are inevitable. They're natural. They're to be expected. So we've been talking about the Brahmavihara practices as purification practices. And in my own practice, it was really helpful when I heard a teacher, I think Michelle McDonald was the person I first heard it from, talking about what she called cycles of purity and purification in the natural unfolding of the practice. So the purity cycle is when we manage to get to one of those phases where the mind does become clear, the hindrances are much less, we experience some degree of ease, perhaps happiness, perhaps even some moments of bliss. This is purity. And that's when we tend to think, ah, yes, now I've got it. Finally. After all this effort, the mind is clear, it's open, it's spacious. What happens next? <laughs> you all probably have the experience, perhaps, in the very next sitting or a few hours later, or perhaps the next day, it feels like everything falls apart. And we experience sometimes bizarrely violent anger or bored out of our brains or just ready to pack up and get in the car and get out of here. This is the purification phase of the practice. And in some ways, it's because we experience that bliss and clarity and stillness that the next kind of level of muck can come bubbling up to be seen, to be known, to be met with kind curiosity so that it too can be metabolized, digested, integrated, or released. And then we've managed to do that. We have another phase of purity and so on. So, the trick with these cycles of purity and purification is to not hold on to the swinging of the pendulum, but to try and make space for all of it. To not feel disappointed when we go back into the next cycle, but to realize this is the natural, organic unfolding of the practice. So, we Um, Dara mentioned the other day the, the dandelions and the daisies that are just naturally opening and closing. We can think of our hearts and minds as also like the sea anemone naturally going through these rhythms of purity and purification. So the next... When we're able to just allow these cycles to unfold instead of getting caught, then the pendulum swings can become a little less dramatic. And we can start to touch into more subtle layers of the next of the three characteristics, which is dukkha, all experiences imperfect, unsatisfactory. And this understanding challenges our very primal desire to try to only experience the pleasant and never experience the unpleasant. And our usual habit when we do meet unpleasant is usually to tighten, to contract, to resist, to pull away, to withdraw, and so on. So, when we did the exploration the other day of Vedana or feeling tone, and I invited you just to notice unpleasant feeling tone and to name it with bare awareness, I'm guessing many of you had that experience in the body. Is that true? Of just uh, uh, the subtle or not so subtle tightening, contracting, bracing against. Was that true for people? Yeah. So one of the strategies if we happen to get caught particularly in painful emotional responses is to try to make more space. So for example, we're just simply doing our practice and then some unexpected painful emotional memory or reaction comes up. We feel that tightening, tensing, resisting. Right there, see if that that can be a sort of a mindfulness bell. To rather than clamp down more, see if you can make more space. So I shared with some of you this mantra that I call ABC, which stands for A Bigger Container. It's something I borrowed from the Zen teacher Charlotte, Joko Beck. And the way I've worked with it in my own practice is to try to, as I say, create more space around the contracting. Metaphorically, it's a little bit like if you have a wild horse and you put it in a small corral, it reacts, resists, bucks and kicks, and it's very intense. But if you let that wild horse out into a bigger pasture... It's the same energy, but because there's more space around it, it doesn't do as much damage. So when I remember A, B, C, it's like, oh, okay, a bigger container. How do I make more space? I start with physically, as I'm doing now, I might just sit up a little straighter and let the shoulders and the chest become a little more open and see if I can feel that sense of stability and connection with the earth, with the ground. I might try and take a deeper breath, so that there's a little more space in the body. If the reactivity is still strong, then I might need to borrow the space of the room, so my bigger container might expand beyond the physical body, And I might open my eyes and take in this container, the bigger container of the space around me. Sometimes even that doesn't feel like enough. And I might need to go outside and connect to nature. So taking some time to be out in the wild in the and connect with the sky, with the vastness of the sky. Or perhaps, as we can do here, go and spend some time overlooking Freestad Lake and see if we can reconnect with the equanimity that that might offer us. And as I've been doing that a little bit, I've been rethinking my bird image for the image of equanimity. So, got rid of the turkey vultures. It's now the blue heron. So the blue heron is my new symbol of equanimity, because the other day when I was coming back from my walk, there was one standing in the grass at the edge of the campsite. And it had its head under its wings, so at first I didn't recognize it. It was just this kind of blob on a stalk. And then I realized, oh, that's a heron. And because its head was under its wing, I could get up quite close to it before it sends to my presence. And then when it did, it didn't, like many birds do, kind of squawk and flap and flit off. It just sort of looked at me and then went ka-flop, and flapped just enough to get out of reach and then settle back down again. And it did it quite slowly and non-reactively. It was just, okay, I see you, time to move on, and then it went. So... The blue heron is my new equanimity symbol. So making space, making a bigger container, literally, metaphorically, in whatever way you can. And that spaciousness can help us connect with the third of the three characteristics, which is anatta, the understanding that everything is impersonal and there isn't a fixed solid, permanent entity at the center of the universe, as we often unconsciously believe. So when we were doing the contemplation this afternoon of working with mind states and simply naming whatever mind states were present, many of you shared seeing just how how they were changing all the time. And we can see which ones we identify with and take personally and which ones we can just allow to come and go. So this movement of clinging, of identifying, of taking personally, is one that we really want to be on the lookout for because it ties so closely to freedom or not. And in the Buddha's teachings, as paraphrased by Ajahn Buddhadasa, Ajahn Buddhadasa, the Thai meditation master, condenses all the teachings into one statement for the Buddha, that nothing is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And I still remember the first time I heard that statement and how my mind just started scrambling for ground. Like, what? Nothing? Well, but what about friends? That's got to be okay. It says nothing. (laughs) Okay, well, um, nothing really? Well, but what about the Dharma? It must be okay to cling to that, right? Mm, It says nothing. (laughs) And I just kept looking for solid ground until I realized. It's the clinging that's the issue. So we can have a relationship to things without clinging. So one teacher I saw a few years ago, he said, most people think of clinging, you know, we cling to things like this. So non-clinging must mean that. But they said, actually, non-clinging is this. So we still have a relationship, but there's not the holding on. And in that more open relationship, this we can use whatever it is we're working with in ways that are skillful rather than in this binary holding on or rejecting kind of mode. So just to take in a little more detail the process that we were starting to explore this afternoon when I was talking about the analogy of the wheel and the body and the breath being at the center the proliferation being on the outside and we were starting to fill in the wheel and that process that mechanism that takes us into proliferation if there is no mindfulness, no sati So, in the Buddha's teachings, we find these different chain reactions are named and identified, and one of them, the chain of cognition, starts with simply noticing contact at the sense doors, which we've been working with, and then the automatic feeling tone, or vedana, that comes with each sense contact, which again, we've been exploring. And then from there, we move into perception, the capacity of the mind to recognize, to name, to know what things are. A bell, a striker, the color blue, dara, and so on. So this perception, if there's no mindfulness, leads to mental formations to fabricating, to constructing, to creating narratives, to excessive thinking, and then to the proliferation of afflictive mind states, or papancha. So the John Peacock, the British academic and meditation teacher, he defines papancha as, he says it has in Pali, connotations of spreading out. It's the mind that runs amok and becomes obsessional. And this papancha usually revolves around a strong sense of I, of me, of mine. It creates narratives about the past and the future. And it almost takes on a life of its own. It keeps us spinning round and round and round, going over the same issues over and over again. And it's dukkha. But the good news is that it's not inevitable. If we can pay attention to this chain of cognition, this movement from the center of the wheel to the outer rim, we can see and understand how Papancha comes into being and how we can help prevent it continuing. So as I said, the first stage is the contact with the sense doors, then the recognition of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then alongside the, that comes the perception. And it's at the stage of perception that the sense of I starts to come in. Or as John Peacock says, we start, the whole chain becomes infected by the I virus. Because perception relies on naming and remembering. We know that that's a bell because at some point early in our development, we learned There's a bell, and so there's a history there, and there's a sense of me uh, moving through time. So I start to come into this, and then with sankharas, with formations, we complexify, we construct, we fabricate, we concoct, oh, that's a bell, it's a particular type of bell. I remember seeing those... I have a Tibetan bell. I'd love to go to Tibet one day. People have circumnamulated Mount Kailash. That would be a great trip. I wonder if I could do that for my 60th birthday. Oh, I might be too old by that point. Constructing, concocting, fabricating. So this is what happens, this cognitive chain, when there is no mindfulness. And we can lay it out as a nice, tidy model with one strand. But in actual practice, it's a multiple feedback loop. I'm sure you've all experienced this. It's not one nice, tidy, linear strand. It just keeps reinforcing until we end up with a giant knot of often very contracted, solid, fixed views and opinions, which we then take to be reality. So we solidify and identify and harden and fix ourselves in these limited positions. But we don't stop there. We do the same thing to other people and to other groups of people. And we interact with each other through these unseen filters of perceptions and misperceptions, volitional formations, stories, narratives, assumptions, biases, stereotypes, on and on and on. It's no wonder there's so much conflict in our communities. And this is where the relational aspect of equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara practice can be supportive. And I'll be going into that more tomorrow because I don't have time tonight. But I just want to come back to this point that equanimity is not about passively accepting whatever painful circumstances we find ourselves in. So in terms of the Brahma-Vihara practices, that would be the near enemy of equanimity, which is a kind of false disengagement or disconnection or indifference, which can be a form of spiritual bypassing. So remembering that equanimity sits at the top of the diamond, it's always supported by compassion by Kuan Yin's readiness to respond to the cries of the world. And just to make the point that compassion also is not always soft and yielding. Sometimes we need the quality of fierce compassion, especially in response to the many forms of social injustice that are all around us. The isms, the pain of racism and sexism and heterosexism and classism and ableism and ageism and all those other isms that keep us caught in harmful and ignorant responses to each other. Fierce compassion is also needed in response to the cries of the world, the world as Mother Earth and the unfolding environmental catastrophe of climate change. And it can be easy to feel overwhelmed by the immense scale of these challenges. But this is where we really need the resources, the support of all four Brahma Vihara qualities to come together and to support us so that we can maintain some degree of balance in the face of all these different crises. So a few years ago, when I was going through a phase of feeling overwhelmed, particularly by uh, some pretty intense political turmoil, I started uh, reading some of the work by Van Jones. Some of you may know he's the CNN political commentator, and he's also a social justice activist. And something I found at that time really helped me to reorient to equanimity. So as you hear this quote, you might recognize some of the Brahmavihara qualities being described in slightly different language. So he's talking about how to respond when there's been an intense crisis. He says, it's okay to take time to grieve and to heal, but then we've got to play our cards right, and our most important card is you. We need you. You can give yourself some space by turning the TV off, turn the radio off, stop going online. You might binge watch some stuff, go exercise, do whatever you need to do to get some cuddles in, to get some snuggles in, and to heal a little bit, and to grieve a little bit. And then, from an authentic place, not pushing, Not, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. That's going to give you a bunch of doo-doo. And we're not trying to do doo-doo. We want you to be. And be connected to who you are. Be connected to why you care so much. Why you love folks so much. We want you to be deeply grounded. Deeply connected so that we can make wise decisions going forward. So to me, those last sentences are another way of talking about equanimity. Letting go of compulsive, self-oriented doing and surrendering into being so that we can stay deeply connected to our love and our care. And then from that place of deep grounding make wise decisions. This is how we find the heart of wisdom. So may all of us learn to strengthen our equanimity more and more fully so that our practice might be a contribution to the welfare and the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May there be peace. Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. For walking. And Dara will be back at eight fifteen for a silent sitting and maybe a bedtime poem. Don't count on it, but let's see. With equanimity, we'll see what unfolds.